I am going to get us started as we continue our series in Galatians. And as I go to start, I want to kind of call your attention. You may have saw this, that there was an article going around the last couple weeks, and it was an autobiographical piece from a journalist who described the manner in which she became a victim of a kind of rather complex, complicated scam. And in the story that, you know, you can find me later if you're interested in reading it, but in the story, what happened is that in a way that she would have never predicted that she would find herself in or imagine that these were the actions that she would take, what ended up happening, the actions that she did take, were that she went to her bank, she withdrew $50,000 in cash, placed it in a shoebox, and then handed it through a car window to a person that she's never met before. And as she gets to sort of the end of this, part of what she is trying to process through is like, how did I get here? And like, even in the ways that typical scam victims, like the profile of a scam victim is like often they're elderly or they're people that are isolated. She was none of those things. She was a younger person. She was married. She had a family. She was an educated person who um, had a degree in journalism and is, is actually an active journalist in finance. Like it, the, the conditions by which she arrived at this place were confounding, I think, mostly to her, like especially to her. And the sort of discourse that I tried to follow on social media about sort of people who were reading this article that kind of went like mini viral for a little bit was a lot of people trying to place themselves in her shoes and trying to imagine like, well, I, I, like an initial reaction I think that most people have of like, I, I would never, like I could never be in a position, I would never be a person who could imagine myself doing these things, that could find themselves in this place. But then, like, as you start to see the conversation evolve, or could I? Might I? How, how might that happen? And, and even in, in what this woman did, because she's a journalist, part of the way that she explored this in her piece and sort of, I, I think, was processing through that, was to do what she was trained to do. She researched, she talked to experts, to try to get at, like, to, like how, how did this happen to me? Like, how, how did I get to this place? And something that she found, an expert that she talked to that I thought was uh, particularly fascinating to me was, and I'm hopefully pronouncing this person's name right, Saul Kaysen, I think. Um, he is a psychology professor who studies coerced confessions. And he had this to say. If someone is trying to get you to be compliant, they do it incrementally in a series of small steps that take you farther and farther from what you know to be true. It's not about breaking the will. They were altering the sense of reality. Something about that is so fascinating to me, that like for this woman, or for any of us, if someone, if you are presented with some sort of like bold ask, some request that is sort of like outside of your character, or what you would say that you affirm I believe this thing, that, that you would likely reject that. You would say like, what? That's not me. I'm not doing that. But rather, if the way that you get there is through small, almost imperceptible changes, the way that you get there is sort of in, in small little sort of tweaks, like little degrees of change, that enough of those can get you to a place where the behavior that you're doing, the thing that you're thinking, the way that you're acting is unrecognizable even to yourself about the things that you would say you hold that you believe. So this idea to me is, is, is fascinating maybe especially as it relates to sort of the way that we live out our faith. That, that for those of us who identify as Christians and call ourselves Christians, that, that we hold to a, a, you know, at the highest level, a belief in the gospel, that, that we believe we are saved by faith in Jesus alone and that, that that determines what we think is possible, the way that we want to navigate the world and be in the world, 
sort of our values and what we imagine. But that for so many of those things I just named, they are counter to the culture and the society around us. That the, the way that, that, that life is structured, that society is structured, that culture is structured, is in certainly not in concert with, and in many cases in direct opposition to that which what might, we might hold and say is true. And so then the danger for, for you, for me, for any of us, is, is it not in the ways that somebody might sort of boldly say, hey, disavow your beliefs, I want, you should believe this other thing, but rather in these small, imperceptible ways that we find ourselves in culture, and that those things, those expectations that are put on us, that I think is what can be especially harmful but kind of easy to fall into the trap of, is a, a limiting of what we might hope for. A limiting of our expectations of what's actually possible in the world. Because if the world is telling us this is how, it, and a lot of this is based in sort of a, a mindset of scarcity. That a world that tells you that, you, that you, you need to operate as though things are scarce. And so all of your actions, your values, your goals, the way that you construct life is out of a place of imagining scarcity that is in, in direct opposition to a God of abundance who tells us that all things are possible and achievable through God. So how do we hold on to that in a world, in a way that those little sort of like waves of, of doubt, waves of, of sort of what culture might tell us could, could chip away at what we hold and believe? How do we then hold on to what we are called to in God and called to through the gospel? And I think the, the, at its core, it is, it is being clear about what we believe, and through the Holy Spirit, it is being able to hold on to that belief and to remain grounded and anchored in that. This condition that I'm describing is not an uncommon one. It is certainly true, I think, certainly I feel it, for us in Chicago in 2024. But I think that some level of what I'm describing, at least at the level I'm describing it, was true from the very first church and the very first Christian to imagine how do I, essentially, how do I hold on to beliefs that disagree with the culture in which I live? And it was certainly true for the, the young churches in Galatia that we will be looking at in Galatians. For these churches, that they are, these are very young churches. These are churches made up of Gentile believers, kind of for the very first time within the history of God advancing through his people in the world. And so imagine how do we hold on to, what, what is it that we are to hold on to of the gospel, and what is it that we are to hold on to of the world, and how do we navigate that? And so there is, there is some specifically some controversy that exists, and we, don't, we, we are only hearing from Paul's side, Paul the author of Galatians, but that there is some controversy that exists that really is centered on the authority of Paul's apostleship as his role as the one to bring this message to the Gentiles, and because of that, the, the truth of what can be believed about the gospel that he is teaching. Paul's focus in this uh, passage that we are going to read today is in the autobiographical details of his life. What he's focused on is the way that he was called, where that calling came from, the source of the gospel, and, and the way that that then plays out in the sort of first few years of his ministry to show the way in which that those things were revealed by God and the gospel that he was given. And in so doing, he is defending kind of the one true gospel of Jesus. And so what we see is that Paul urges the Galatians to stand firm in the gospel of Jesus. So we will now be reading from Galatians chapter 1, verse 10 is where we are starting. Then we are ending all the way at the end of chapter 2, verse 21. It is normally, I say normally, our tradition at this church to stand for the reading of God's word. 
I'm going to give us the week off because <laughs> this was a, quite a long passage. I was like, if we do this, we're going to have to pass around water and snacks so that everyone has energy to sustain them. Um, so I, I'm going to encourage you to be attentive, but to, to get comfy in your seats. If you want to pull out your Bible or look um, on an app on your phone uh, to follow along, but I will read to us. Okay, so starting in verse 10, chapter 1. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that I am writing, what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once destroyed, he, he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. Now moving to chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whether they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also in work in in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we too have put our faith in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. So, what we have is a long passage that sort of describes the autobiographical details of Paul's life, and, and we're going to dig into that. But, but where, where I want to point us to and sort of ground us in as we start is that, you know, as Andrew mentioned earlier, we as a church are in a year of pursuing Sabbath and doing so communally, doing so together and individually, and to, to sort of see what God might offer us there. And if you were here a few weeks ago, you might remember that we had a panel discussion where a few members of our church were up here talking about kind of their experience with Sabbath, the ways that they live that out, sort of what that looks like for them, and then allowing for Q&A where folks were able to ask questions about that and sort of as they're sort of exploring or imagining what God might do in their lives. And something that really stayed with me from that whole discussion that a few different people, I think, named in different ways, is that they are in for the idea of Sabbath. They are committed to the idea of sort of what God might offer them in Sabbath. They want to be a part of that. They want to be open to what God is offering them there. But that the world around them is not really constructed in a way to be conducive to that, that, that it seems at odds with or directly opposing their ability to go for that. It's not arranged in a way, whether that's in values or support, sort of more sort of indirect ways, or even in very direct practical ways of like, I, I, the, the practical details of my life don't allow for me to, to take Sabbath. And so in this way, as we described earlier, I think there, there can be a, uh, oh, maybe this is actually what the reality is. There can be a way of, of limiting our hope or our imagination for, for what God might offer us in Sabbath or any other good gift that God could offer. And so here, as in all things, as gifts from God, we, we need the gospel to guide us. We need the gospel to anchor us into what, what can truly be possible. And so for us today, we are to stand in no other gospel than the gospel of grace. We are to stand in no other gospel than the gospel of grace. And in order for us to have, in order for us to better do that, what we see in this passage are kind of three essential truths about the gospel of grace for us to hold on to as we imagine sort of living that out. Those three truths are the gospel of grace is revealed only by God. The gospel of grace brings about unity in the people of God. And the gospel of grace is offered to us by faith in Jesus alone. So we're going we're to dig into each of those as sort of um, through the argument of, of what Paul is doing in this passage. So first, the gospel of grace is revealed only by God. So this is captured in kind of a... a summarizing thesis statement, a sort of uh, overall idea that you see in uh, chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. So rereading that just very quickly. The gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. 
And, and those two verses find themselves in what I'll call kind of the first, we're going to try to chunk out the passage because it's a long passage. So, we're gonna, so in this first passage of um, chapter 1, verses like kind of 10 through 24, um, what we see laid out there in a very sort of detailed, almost like lawyerly kind of way is a, is a very rational, fact-based, chronological argument that Paul is laying out of the autobiographical details of his life. And, and what he is showing is the manner in which the gospel came to him, the way that he was he played that out within sort of his ministry to start, and specifically pointing out in, in very careful and specific detail any places where he did or did not interact with the apostles of Jerusalem. So it, it's, it's specifically laying out to show here is where my apostleship came from, here is where the gospel came from. And, and the focus, the, the lens through which he views that, the, the basis and the argument, the sort of continuing sort of theme of that argument is that the way in which all of this came about is from a revelation from God. This is, this is not from consulting with anyone. This wasn't anything that anyone told me. This isn't even my own arguments or my, sort of what I might believe that this is coming from and only from a revelation from God in the way that God is playing that out. And therefore, the authority of his message, the authority of the gospel message he is bringing, is born out of that revelation. And so the authority is actually the authority of God, God's self, because it is coming from God that is the source of this gospel. And so in, in the way that this, this is done, that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that there were those who were opposing Paul, that was sort of, um, there was controversy, and I, I imagine accusations that were happening against who Paul was and how valid it was for Paul to be even be preaching this to the Gentiles. And, and Paul's focus here is not to engage in any kind of personal conflict. He's not getting into the, the sort of weeds of, like, sort of, you're right, I'm wrong kind of thing. Uh, uh, nor is he sort of, from a personal standpoint, defending his own character or sort of engaging in sort of personal attacks. By the way, like, I would love if there was a different book that wasn't the Gospels where I could read about how Paul actually felt about all these things. I, I would find that fascinating. But in the recorded sort of history of what Paul is doing here, for the church and for the church in Galatia, what, what Paul's focus is, is really the truth of the gospel. And for, for Paul, the truth of the gospel cannot be separated from the fact that it is, it is revealed by God. That is the only authority that matters. That because it is revealed by God, that is where Paul trusts in his call as an apostle, trusts in his ability to, to teach a, a gospel that maybe does deviate from what the apostles in Jerusalem might be doing. And, and it is an acknowledgement that it is not really Paul's gospel, it is the gospel of God. And, and I, I think of, um, if, if you think about like in medieval times where, where there's a herald, I, I, what, what feels true here is like Paul embracing the idea of him being a herald. And, and the job of a herald is not to create a message or to form a message, but it is to bring forward the message of the king. And it is in that way that Paul is operating here as an apostle. And in, in this gospel, in this gospel that God has revealed to Paul, the thing that he is, he, is, he feels the, the burden in the sense of, of burden of, of the role that God has given him, is around the dominating force of all that he believes is one of grace. That it is grace that is the dominating force. It is the power. It is the, the action that animates the gospel that he has and what, what he believes brings together the gospel and holds it together. And, and so this is true even in the manner in which the gospel is revealed. That the way that we can know some truth about God 
the way that we could even seek to know who God is and what is true about God and what God might intend for us and who we are as the people of God and what we can imagine and hope for within God, that that can never be something that we can achieve ourselves. We cannot know it by trying. We cannot know it by striving or by getting things right or lining things up or just thinking harder or trying harder or imagining harder or setting things up harder. It is only by revelation from God that those things can be known. That God is creator and we are created. And so knowledge of the living God comes because God gives it to us, not from any way that we could try to achieve it ourselves. It is never us reaching up to take it. It is always God's loving hand extending down to give it. This is the only manner in which we can learn anything that is true about God and what God has for us. And so we are, we are to embrace and be anchored by that. The, the, the manner in which we can, for, for anyone here today who desires to know more of what God has for you, become more like Jesus. To imagine how that plays out in your life. To navigate, what, what does Sabbath look like in my life? How can I get the good gifts? But I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. Any ability for us to get there will never be because we figured it out. It will never be because we tried a little harder or thought a little harder or set up our lives. We are called to participate. We are called to be creative. We are called to be a, a partner in that. But ultimately, the unfolding of that, the way that that can be given to us is a gift only from God and revealed by God. And as I, as I think about the conversations I've had, even my own sort of self-engagement with like imagining what, what um, Sabbath can look like for me, it has occurred to me that, that for me and for maybe for you that, that we are working too hard. That we are working too hard to imagine that, that, we, that there are those of us who are, who are up for wanting the good things of God, that we believe that God could give those, but that somewhere in there is still a belief that like, yeah, but I got to do something to make that happen. I got to work. A, I, I, there's something for me in this that I got to work at to do that. I, I, I got to be a, I got to figure that out enough. And somehow that our efforts in any way play a role in us receiving the good gifts of God. And so if this is you, I would encourage you even right now or as you leave from here and in prayer to, to think about where is the place where you are working hard around this? Where is the wall that you run up against when you think about Sabbath or the good gifts of God where you imagine where your, your, your instinct, your heart goes to a place of like, oh, I, I got it. Any statement that starts with I got it is where this, where this thing is entering into our thinking. And what would it look like? And, and this, I think we need God's help. I think we need God's revelation for this. What would it look like for in that place where it feels most comfortable or most safe for you to imagine that it's an I got it? What would it look like for you to be able to put that down? And what is the picture of instead of you working at that thing, God giving it to you as a gift? Are you willing to imagine that? That's a vulnerable thing. I, I, I say that with sincerity. And the places, especially the places where we feel like we need to work at it, there's a reason why we feel like we need to work at it. There's something about a self-protection, a place that somewhere in our life we learned that it was not safe to not work at that thing. It was not safe to, for me to not be trying harder at that thing. Are you willing to imagine the good gift that God might have for you if you put that down? And not because you are making a safety for yourself, but because God is creating the safety for you. 
I invite all, I'm preaching myself too. I invite all of us to think about and consider how we might go after them. So th this is the first essential element of the gospel. The gospel is revealed by God alone. So as we imagine looking to stand in no other gospel than the gospel of grace, the second essential element is that the gospel of grace brings about unity in the people of God. So we are moving now into Galatians chapter 2. So as we go into like Galatians 2, verses like we'll call it 1 through 10, um, we see a continued sort of detailed recording of the engagement of Paul as the unfolding, sort of his unfolding ministry work and his apostleship. And, and here is a specific critical meeting that Paul has with the, uh, with the apostles from Jerusalem. And, and this, is, this, is, this is a very specific meeting that actually is, is initiated by Paul. This is Paul going forward to, the Jeru to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles. And so Paul's motive here is not to seek any kind of endorsement. I, we've established pretty well that like, Paul doesn't feel like he needs that. He's, it's, this is revealed by God. That's what he's working out of. That's how he understands his apostleship and the gospel. So it's not about endorsement, nor is it about, like, i got to go tell them what's what, and I'm going to go there, and we're going to have a fight about sort of, like, who knows more or what, what's the right way to understand the gospel. And, in, in fact, what we see in these verses is that the whole reason that Paul is initiating this meeting is by revelation. So even in this, there is a, a prompting from God. It is God who is sort of bringing this forward into Paul sort of having this meeting with these apostles. So what's going on? What, what's God up to? Like, why is God initiating this thing? Well, I, I think as we seek to understand that, it's worth noting kind of when this meeting is happening. This is in the very, very early history of the church. And there is a seismic shift happening. That up until this point, the, the sort of church, the people of God, was rooted in the Israelite people. And even with Jesus coming and, and sort of the initiation of the gospel and the inauguration of that, that was still understood in primarily through a, a Jewish context. But now things are happening where Paul is seemingly being given a gospel that is meant to go to the Gentiles and outside of the, the Jewish people. And there's going to be one combined people of God that combines all these things. And so this is full of, as you can imagine, this is full of tension and confusion and working stuff out. And how do we re-understand this? And how do we reimagine what this could be? And so Paul's focus here then in, in going to the apostles in Jerusalem is to, to establish that in the gospel that Paul has received and the gospel that, that is true for the apostles in Jerusalem, that this all exists as one gospel of grace. That there is not, a, even, even in the ways that there is clear differences and clear things that need to be worked out, it, it is all one unified God. In the way that both those, both those, I mean, it's really one, but in, in way that both those gospels were revealed to these in, individual peoples, all of it falls under one God and one gospel. And because that is true, that Christians, believers, people of God can expect that there will be unity within the people in a way that, like, if on its face, you would, you would say, no way. It, this does not look like unity. There are more differences that we can point to about imagining how this has worked out than similarities. But because there is one gospel of grace, we can imagine unity within the people of God. And indeed, that is what is concluded, that from this meeting, what they conclude is that there is actually no fundamental difference in the essence of the gospel. 
And the thing that's holding that together, the way that that can be true, even though it is lived out differently and played out differently in different contexts for the circumcised and the uncircumcised as they are described here, the reason that there could be one gospel, that we can, even though this looks totally different, and the traditions and the ways that it plays out and what's meaningful to you over here and you over here is different, the reason that that could all be understood, what is the lens, what is the context, what is the thing that holds us together, it is grace. What is needed by whether you are Jew or Gentile is the grace of God. And that the grace of God is the only thing that will bring you into right standing with God. It is both the means and the only thing that is sufficient, whether you are a keeper of the law or not. And, and as, as part of that, that unity that is seen, that, it, that it is concluded, that it is sort of one gospel of grace that, that is overall, it's worth noting that in verse 10 there is a reference to the poor. And, and in this verse um, is a reference specifically to those who are living within the Jerusalem community who were living in abject poverty. And so what is being noted here is not a demand from, like, the mother church. Rather, this is a request from the apostles in Jerusalem to say, we have those that are in need. And indeed, as a sign of unity, Paul's response is, I was already eager to be a part of helping that. That from the very beginning, even when things were... at arguably one of the most confusing times in church history, unity was not only understood as sort of belief or a way that we identify, but in material needs to make up for the needs of the people to where undoubtedly where some of those needs came from marginalization or exploitation, that that there was an answer to that. There was an answer to the material, tangible needs of the community even from the very first days of the church. This is what unity looked like. And so this message, this, this message that it is the gospel of grace that we hold as one gospel that brings about unity is, in my mind, very relevant for us here today. And I, and I mean that especially, new community, us here today. That we are called to be a part of this multicultural, multiracial, beautiful, messy, complicated church. And that in the ways that we are all coming here from different understandings and different expectations and different backgrounds, and all, all the ways that, that we bring different sort of expectations to what church is meant to be or how we live out life or how we imagine what, what, what that should look like, that we are still held together by a unity that is from the gospel. And that that unity does not need to look like conforming to majority culture. It does not need to look like saying, oh, well, that, in order for this to work, we all need to veer towards the thing that is the majority or where the privilege might lie. But rather, all of those things can somehow, in ways that apart from God, I don't know how we would do, but somehow can coexist because what actually holds us together is the gospel of grace. And that that is enough. And in fact, by, by leaning into that, by saying, yes, this is messy. Yes, this is painful. Yes, there are times where I feel unseen by somebody here for any one of us, or someone says something that feels backwards, or I'm hurt by, or I feel neglected by, that all those things can can exist, and that we can still, it is not too much for us to aim for unity because of the gospel of grace that holds us together. And so we affirm this as part of our call, that our our call to be a a multiracial, multicultural church, a church that is called to be reconciled to one another and to God, and to be reconcilers in the world, that that's not just a theme that we have. It's not just an idea that we sort of are passionate about or one of the programs that we have or an area of focus that we do in our strategic planning. It is, 
in the very nature of the call of God. And that is not that is not just I think we have a unique call within that, but it is from the very beginning very rooted in the gospel of grace. That the gospel of grace is supposed to lead to unity. It is supposed it is a it is a right and good expectation for us to hold on to and reach out for unity. And in fact, part of God's plan, the the good work that God wants to reveal to the world, the way that all reconciliation can be created is because of the unity that comes from that. And so where that can be tense or awkward or hurtful or any of the things that any one of us might experience about what it is to practically live that out here, just want to remind us of our call. That our call is not just one of, of that we like or that sort of feels right or feels good. It may, it may be all those things, but it's actually the call of God. So we now then go into our third truth and our final truth of, that we see from this passage about the gospel of grace and that the gospel of grace is offered to us by faith in Jesus alone. So as we get to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21, we arrive at really kind of the crux of the controversy that there was a lot of sort of lead-in and there's a lot of things of people accusing people and sort of undermining stuff. But like really where the rubber hits the road, where the traction is, where, where's the, the thing that is sort of the critical point that is getting everyone really worked up is around the issue of circumcision. So you see that reference throughout the passage a bit, but, but here's where we kind of take that on head-on. So some context for us for that, just from history, because to understand why, why is this one ritual so important. Uh, so for the first century Jews, uh, there's a, there was a larger obligation because of their history and their understanding of being part of the people of God around submitting to the law of Moses. And in fact, circumcision played a, a specific and special role in, in who they were as a people. That this act originated in the special covenant that God had with Abraham. And, and what that act meant was that there was an election and a purity so it was more than just an act. It was more than just like a, 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 a thing that you do. It was built in. It was baked into our, the Israelite understanding of who we are as a people. This is what we are about. We are about being the elected people of God. That We are, we are called to be the pure people of God. And, and a sign of that is our circumcision. So I, I, have some, I have some compassion or sympathy when I consider it that way of why this thing would be so important and why it would feel so critical. If you imagine that sort of my identity, the way that I understand life, the way that very sort of devoted, devout, good-meaning people who are desiring after God, that this is part of what we do and it's, it's, it's an essential part of how we imagine living this out. To all of a sudden say like, okay, maybe that's not as important. Would be hard. And, and in fact, so then there are those who are... Um, who are, who are sort of the most, most committed to that idea. And so there's those that have a strong attachment to the church at Jerusalem, and, and these, these people are very zealous for kind of keeping the law and imagining that that is what will allow us to remain as the people of God, even in this new era, that we, this is what will allow us to be the people of God. This is how we can live out this thing of Christianity, and what we imagine it will look like is, is that because of what Christ has done, we will now be able to fulfill this thing that we have been committed to all along, which is sort of keeping the law. And so then Paul's law-free brand of the gospel, what Paul is advocating for is to say, it is not law anymore. It is grace alone. We, we, we do not need to be concerned about sort of the, the law in those ways. It is, not, it is not a need or a necessity anymore that this actually feels dangerous. 
dangerous in a well-meaning way. Dangerous in a way that is like you are threatening the very early stages of this thing of Christianity and what you are advocating for. So there, there is there is actual reason why this is important to to the Israelite people. And so what we see then is so what you know to really quickly summarize what's going on the. Um, they are eating, including with Cephas, who is another name for Peter. They are eating with the Gentile people. And part of the ritual law is that those who are circumcised should not be eating with the uncircumcised. And, and so um, when the, the zealous people come and say, hey, what's going on here? Why are you doing that? Peter makes a decision to say, okay, I'm going to step away from that. I'm going to stop eating with the Gentile people. And I would argue that there is a manner in which that is a rational choice from Peter. That if you imagine, like, we don't know for sure, because we don't get to hear Peter's side of the thing in, the, in this story. But if you imagine that what Peter is thinking is, perhaps what he is focused on is the unity of the church. And he wants to keep unity. He has he, he committed to the idea that this should be a unified thing. And, and this action that I am doing, I'm responsible for this, that I am creating a sense of disruption. I'm creating a sense of conflict. And maybe that will even get back to the church in Jerusalem and create conflict for sort of my home church back there. And, and, and so all this conflict is raising up from, from this action I am taking. So, so maybe the easiest thing is for me to just back away. Maybe the easiest thing is for me to, to not engage in this act. I'll, I'll just step back, and that way we can sort of keep the peace. And this, though, is the source of Paul's indignation. That it, he knows because of the meeting that happened earlier, that this is not actually a point of belief for Peter. This is not based out of a belief that, that he is saying he was revealed from God, that this is what we need to do. Peter's actually on board for what Paul was saying. Rather, what he knows and what Peter is trying to do is to keep the peace. And the, the problem with that is that, that keeping the peace in this case and in so many cases is really other language for maintaining the status quo. It is for how do we keep sort of peace in a way that allows us to lean towards the comfort and privilege of the majority class? How do we minimize any inconvenience that those people might feel, even though it leads to greater marginalization or otherizing of the minority class? But that we need to, we need to do so to make sure that we keep this going, that we keep the peace. And so what Paul sees very clearly in this is that this is not just one act. And especially at this stage in the history of the church, that, the, that this one act can lead to the watering down of the gospel of grace. That it is in some way, in some way communicating that you need to add to grace to be at the full standing of the people of God. That if you really want to be a full member of this, of this thing that we are creating, the, the thing that God is creating, that if you want to have the full rights, if you want to be seen as an equal, if you want to share equal time with me where I don't treat you any different, then yes, it's grace, and that gets you in the door, but you also got to do these other things. And this, for Paul, undercuts the very basis of the gospel of grace, which Paul has been called. That it is by grace alone. That there is no measure of conforming to majority culture or a need for, for the marginalized to, to be adjust, to be the ones who are inconvenienced in order to hold this together. That it is by grace alone that we can all come. So what is at stake here is really the truth of the gospel and the unity of the church. 
that in this moment is a, is a point to say, are, what are we really committed to? Are we saying that it is actually grace alone or it's grace alone plus we got to make sure we're keeping what was true before? And so what is affirmed in, in the final part of this passage is, is what is the early doctrine of the, just, the doctrine of the justification by faith. And we're, we're going to see that further explored in the chapters to come um, as we continue to go through Galatians. But, but just to name, I think those words, justification by faith, I think it's such a core tenet or principle of our faith, something that we sort of say and throw around. And I, I, to me, I think there's a risk of those words just sort of washing over us, like kind of going like, yes, okay, got it. What's next? I just want to take a moment for us all to pause. That if we want to, if you want to know how good our God is, if you want to know how loving a father we have, look no further than here. That we are justified by faith alone. Though we stood guilty in our sin, that through the atoning work of Christ on the cross, we were forgiven and that we were justified. Don't let these words wash over you. We hear them so many times. This is the awesome and amazing truth of God. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying this to myself as much as anybody. That we stand justified before God and that in that, we actually get to enter into union with the living Jesus. That Jesus lives in us and that now we can reimagine what it means to be a person of God. That we can reimagine what is possible. That we can live out all of the promises of God and all of the goodness of God. We can actually expect to unroll and be fulfilled in us individually and us as a community, as a church. It is not too much to hope for because of what Jesus has done. And and, and that there is nothing that we can do, will do, or could ever do that will add to that. That all of what I just said, all of the wonderful promises, all of the things that we can hope for is because of the finished work of Christ. Finished work of Christ. There's nothing you or I will ever do that will add to that. Our only response is one of a a response to the objective truth that God has done of one of faith. That is what we are invited into. And so we are called, beloved brothers and sisters, into the gospel of grace. A gospel that's revealed only by God. A gospel that brings about unity for us as the people of God. And a gospel that leads to, and that we receive by the just, justification by faith alone. And as I was preparing for this sermon, um, I felt like God was pointing me to the fact that we have a church of, and I say this lovingly, of, of earnest hard-working people. That a, a makeup of, of many of us in this church are people who are used to working hard. And that's not a, I, that in itself is not a bad thing. But, but that we're, we're used to that. We're, we're good at it. We're comfortable with it. We've, we've, there are different places in our lives where we've, we've, we've learned to use that or leverage that or live out of that place. And that, that there, there are good things that have come from that for our own lives, that God has used, that that's a part of who we are but that, that the other side of that coin can be a being really hard on ourselves. And when, that in a place of working hard, we can imagine that it is the working hard that can get distorted. It is the working hard that you can imagine that, that this is an expectation that, that I put on myself, and there's a perfectionism that I'm, I'm going for. And I felt like what part of God was, was speaking to me for all, us as a community 
is that part of the gift of Sabbath that God is calling us into in this year is to experience what it might be like to not work so hard. Not in all parts of your life, but in this. That you might experience what it's like to, to not work hard and to only receive. That you might receive rest in ways that you think are unimaginable. That you might receive restoration in ways that you feel like, i got to work my way to get there. That you might receive the promises of the good gifts that we see described here in a way that you are very clear at the end of it, I had nothing to do with that. That this is a promise that I felt like God is calling us into. And that in this, that we might further understand the God that we follow and the gospel of grace that God calls us into. So please join me as I pray. Lord, we, we can only be thankful, Lord. Lord, when we encounter the truth of what you have done for us, what you have called us into, that you remind us, Lord, that we couldn't have done it ourselves and that we had nothing to do with it, Lord, we are thankful. Lord, would you awaken every heart and mind and soul here, Lord, to not grow cold to the truth of that? Would you help us to connect freshly and anew in exactly where we are today? And not for that to become a work either, Lord, but that there would be a gift in that for us. That there would be a way that we would be reminded of your goodness, Lord, in exactly where we are today, in exactly the circumstances, in exactly where any one of us is in our faith journey. That we might be reawakened, Lord, to the truth of the gospel of grace. And Lord, as I I pray for all of us, as we continue to enter into this year of Sabbath, Lord, that that we believe you have given us, Lord, and that that you have called us into as a gift from you. Lord, would you separate from this, Lord, the hard work that we are used to operating out of, the hard work that, that, that we might imagine needs to play some role here, Lord. Would you protect us from that? Would you keep us from that, Lord? And Lord, would you instead show us in ways that are surprising, in ways that we can't manufacture, Lord, how we can just receive the good gifts of your grace, Lord, through Sabbath. For everyone here, Lord, I I pray that you would bring that about in a way that exactly makes sense and exactly is needed for where any one of us sits today. Lord, we thank you that we, we, we can lean into your promises, that we can lean into hope, that we will not be made fools, Lord, because you are the one who gives it authority and truth. We thank you, Lord. Amen.